Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast where the city of Cologne today is Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old, but before it became what is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as a kind of microcosm of European history. Here you can listen to the city grow, chronologically from the Romans to our present time. What's in store for you this episode? It is restless in the late 9th century in the Empire of the Franks. After the death of Louis the Pious in 843, numerous civil wars and empire divisions have caused the once powerful empire of Charles the Great to disintegrate. Internal instability also attracted external enemies, like the Vikings, who repeatedly raided the Frankish Empire, especially Paris and then even our Cologne in 881. The world is palpably in upheaval. And in this episode, you'll find out how Cologne is making its way through this phase. In the last episode, the Vikings had attacked and plundered Cologne and the Rhineland. We also addressed the question of the extent to which the destruction of the Vikings in Cologne really took place. The paradox here was that the few written sources testified to an enormous degree of destruction, but archaeologically, there is no real evidence of this in Cologne. On the contrary, the buildings from this period that we can still find in the cityscape today, such as the Church of St. Gerion, show no traces of destruction on the building fabric that could date from the late 9th century. That the Vikings were here in the early 880s, however, is undisputed. In their raid, they had left a wide trail of destruction and also invaded deep into the surrounding countryside away from the Rhine. The still-existing Roman road network had more than helped them. Many monasteries belonging to the Archbishopric of Cologne had been destroyed. On the one hand, there was the monastery of Malmedy in the town of the same name in present-day Belgium, and the one in Cornelimünster, the present-day district of the city of Aachen, which had been destroyed and had to be rebuilt. But not only monasteries, everything in the region that was once built by humans had been destroyed or devastated. Farms, wells, roads, paths, bridges, houses, churches, and, and, and. Still, the Archbishop of Cologne, Willibert, with whom we already dealt at the end of the last episode, seems to have done a good job of rebuilding. However, the developments in the Rhineland with the associated Viking invasions were not just a local phenomenon. An upheaval is taking place in the Occidental world once conquered together by Charles the Great. For this, we have to take a look at the bigger picture. As a brief introduction, Frankish imperial history is extremely complicated and diverse. Tens of divisions, tens of men, and they all somehow are called the same like Louis, Charles or Lofa. Therefore, I will simplify as far as possible the developments that go through the Frankish kingdoms. That is to say, I will have to omit some things. Therefore, where do I begin? Let's start with the East Frankish Empire in general. 
The territory of the East Frankish Empire included large parts of today's territory of the Federal Republic of Germany and, oh wonder, it is precisely from this entity that the German Kingdom, the largest part of the later so-called Holy Roman Empire, later emerges. Here too I would like to emphasize once again, until the 19th century, people in these areas did not have a sense of national identity. It was rather the local or regional affiliations that counted. And that is a good transition to the next topic. The numerous civil wars of the Carolingians among themselves for the rule and the permanent divisions weakened the central power and the crown permanently, quite similar to the civil wars of the Merovingians before that we have dealt with. Charles the Great had limited the power of the Frankish counts during the long period of his reign and had transformed them into non-hereditary offices. That is to say, if the respective count died, it was up to him, Charles, who became the new count there. The former duchies, such as those of the Alemanni or Thuringians, which once stood between the local level of the counts and that of the king at the top, Charles had completely abolished. In this way, Charles became the great, as whom we still know him today. However, this development was a long time ago and was now reversed at the end of the 9th century. Due to the numerous partitions and civil wars, the Carolingian kings were dependent on involving the local and regional nobility more and drawing them to their own side. Thus, the individual Carolingians gave their local nobility numerous gifts such as lands and more rights. Especially the latter formed a new class of regional and powerful nobles. While in Charles the Great's time it was still the case that a fief granted by the king, together with its title, returned to the king after the death of the respective holder and could be granted anew, this practice also changed. So the local and regional nobility could now also bequeath fiefs and privileges granted by the respective king, along with the titles of nobility, to their own descendants. In the Western Frankish Empire, so later France, the development was already so far advanced that there the high nobility only elected as king, the one who offered them the most and would help them most promisingly against the numerous invasions of the Vikings. What had the consequence that in the end of the 9th century, already now and then also non-Carolingians ascended the throne of the West Franks. Invasions by external enemies such as the Vikings completely undermined the authority of the kings as the central focus of power in the Frankish kingdoms. Now we have already shown in the last episode that here in the Rhineland and Cologne the Viking Age was a rather short, albeit brutal phase. But if that were not enough, other external enemies had also quite a taste for paying a visit to Central Europe. In the east and northeast of the Frankish Empire, there was increased fighting with the still pagan Slavs. The Slavs had also moved westwards in the course of the migration period at the end of the Roman Empire and now settled in the regions formerly abandoned by the Germanic tribes in what is now Eastern Europe. But if that were not enough, a completely new danger now loomed.
from the southeast, so today's Bavaria and Austria, as well as northern Italy, the news came to Cologne around the year 900 that a mysterious people on horseback plundered and robbed everything that was not nailed down. The Magyars, or better known at least in German and as well in English, I believe, as the Hungarians. Who were the Magyars? First request by me. May I call them Hungarians? Because that's easier for me to pronounce. And since today's modern Hungarians still refer to themselves as Magyars, hopefully this is okay because it's a synonymous term. The Hungarians, like the Huns before in late antiquity, were excellent horsemen. There's much speculation about their exact origins before they finally settled in what is now Hungary, in the Carpathian Basin and still other regions. Often the Ural Mountains are mentioned as the origin in nowadays Russia. Of course, I cannot do justice to the Hungarians here in all length. Seen in this way, however, the Hungarians joined the ranks of those ethnic groups, tribes or peoples who since late antiquity have invaded the territory of the former Roman Empire, now Western and Central Europe. Like the Vandals, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Huns, Burgundians, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Lombards, Alemanni, Franks, Arabs and last but not least the Vikings. Now the Hungarians joined the club. The fighting style of the Hungarians were as simple as they were ingenious. All warriors rode on horseback. They rode with little equipment and armor in order to travel faster and easier. And above all, the Hungarian warrior relied, in addition to his horse of course, on his bow, which had been specially adapted for the ride. I am not the greatest expert on military history, but armies of the early Middle Ages were simple. True, the Frankish nobles rode horses, but their respective levies, which made up the overwhelming majority of Frankish armies, all went into battle on foot. This, after all, was in keeping with the Frankish system of rule. Counts and dukes called their subjects, mostly free peasants, to arms. Of course, they did not appear in full shining armor and with horses, but mostly with what they had available from their daily work as farmers. The times of hard-trained professional armies like the Roman legionnaires are long over. So if the Hungarians wanted to defeat a Frankish army, the tactic was simple. Ride close enough to the enemy, raise the bow to the sky and with dozens of other comrades fire a hail of arrows which then rained down on the poor Frankish foot soldiers, bringing death and destruction. After that, ride away as quickly as possible and gradually repeat the previous steps mentioned. This battle tactic made the Hungarians a particularly dangerous opponent to which the Franks initially knew no solution. Only the later East Frankish king Heinrich I, or Henry in English, was to realize that armored horsemen, so knights, were needed firstly to survive such a hail of arrows in battle and secondly to get at the Hungarian horsemen quickly and purposefully. If you manage to engage the lightly armored Hungarians in close combat with armored knights, the Hungarians were the ones who lost out. Foreshadowing not intended. You've certainly seen documentaries about how complex and costly knight's armor was. It is true that 
They have changed immensely over the centuries. However, they were elaborate and expensive at all times of their use, even today for people who cosplay and like reenactments. To pay for it, Frankish kings granted land and titles to knights so they could afford to keep the horses, weapons, and armor. You've always wondered how chivalry came to be in Central Europe? Yes, exactly like this. Well, in a very simplistic way. But, well, we digressed a little bit. Had the people of that time just recovered from the Vikings or were still suffering because of them, now the Hungarians invade the empire from the southeast, also here to us on the Rhine. Gerresheim is nowadays a tranquil district in the east of modern-day Düsseldorf, with the character of a small town. This is also no coincidence. Gerresheim is much older than the present-day city of Düsseldorf, which lies north of Cologne and incorporated the small town of Gerresheim into its urban area in 1909. In the 9th century, a woman's monastery was founded here in Gerresheim, which led to a rapid economic development of the town and the surrounding area. This attracted the Hungarians to carry out a raid here in the year 922. The local canonesses fled with difficulty and found refuge in Cologne. There they received the church of St. Ursula from the Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann I, and established a new convent here, which was to exist until 1802. Whether St. Ursula had already had an existing ladies' convent before, perhaps it had been virtually been empty since the raid of the Vikings in 881 in Cologne, because the inhabitants there had been killed, Sadly, we do not know. Archbishop Hermann I nevertheless used the favor of the hour to rebuild the convent here at St. Ursula with the expelled ladies from Gerresheim and, like his successors, promoted the veneration of the martyr and St. Ursula. Above all, the ever-increasing pilgrimage traffic from the entire Christian world later contributed to the wealth of this ladies' convent. In the course of the Middle Ages, 40 noble ladies alone, plus numerous female servants, lived here and performed spiritual duties. As much as the Hungarians are important for German history, for Cologne they are often only significant in these minor sentences like this one. Cologne was never attacked by the Hungarians. Attacking or conquering a fortified city like Cologne was probably not in their mind at the time. Remember what I said in the last episode at the end. The Viking raid in 881 was the last time for nearly 900 years that an enemy army set foot inside the city walls of Cologne. Nevertheless, Cologne will have suffered economically from the fact that trading partners and the Rhineland were repeatedly the victims of Hungarian raids. This further led to dissatisfaction with the Carolingian rulers in the East Frankish Empire among the people and especially among the regional nobility. I do not want to digress here, but it would not be until the middle of the 10th century that the Hungarians would make the first attempts to settle permanently in the East Frankish Empire with bases, such as through conquered cities, among other things. Other than before, always riding back home to what is now Hungary. But more about that another time.
The Church of St. Cecilia, today part of the Museum Schnuttgen for Medieval Art and at the same time still a consecrated church, is another place where something similar to St. Ursula happened. Here the previous church was converted into a noble ladies' monastery in 888. It just needs more places to unload old or unwanted female relatives. Although the noble ladies were not completely unloaded and forgotten here at all, The monastery was located in the middle of the city and even within the old Roman city wall. Monasteries were some of the few places in the early Middle Ages where women could be the most independent in comparison of the time and circumstances. The ladies there were not completely subject to the supervision of their father or husband. No one forced them to marry a man. Here in the convent, They could govern themselves, work and make decisions for the economic development of the convent completely without the male paternalism on the spot. In particular, the mistress of a convent could exercise a certain political authority over noble men because of the economic power, know-how and knowledge of their monastic properties. All the way up to kings and emperors. In the 12th century, for example, the abbess Poet and polymath Hildegard von Bingen, who worked in the Rhineland south of Cologne, would be a well-known example of this right up to our own day. Right next to the convent of St. Cecilia, the parish church of St. Peter was built at the same time, which would later become the baptistry of the famous Baroque painter Peter Paul Rubens. As usual, St. Peter would receive several rebuilds and new additions through the centuries. St. Peter stands to this day as a largely Gothic structure, augmented by post-war architecture of the 1950s. But why did they build two churches right next to each other here, near today's Neumarkt Square? A monastery church and a parish church next to each other? Well, that was to become completely normal for the Middle Ages. The monastery church was usually only for the internal use, of the clergy who lived there. Only the nuns and monks or the canonesses and canons were to hold their services here. This monastery church was within the monastery property and thus like the monastery itself with its dormitories for its inhabitants as well as writing rooms, kitchen as well as gardens beyond their secular jurisdiction and surrounded by walls especially for this purpose. Ordinary people like you and me, were not usually tolerated here, so as not to disturb the pious seclusion of the priests. These geographically separated spaces for the clergy in the monasteries were called immunity districts, a special form of legal district for the hermetic monastic complex. This was only abolished in Europe at the beginning of the 19th century, quasi like a temple district with extra-legal features, which had already existed in Roman Cologne in this form as at the site of today's Church of St. Mary in the capital. Here Trajan had offered a sacrifice in the year 98 when he entered the city. The difference here, however, was that Christian monasteries were now built or erected in the midst of the city, while ancient temple districts were largely built on the outskirts or outside the city.
Still in this spirit, for example, St. Gerion, St. Ursula and St. Severin, among others, were built outside the city walls of Cologne. Here the Roman tradition had been continued, even if now for the new Christian god and no longer for Jupiter or Venus. But because of these existing immunity districts, the parish church for the non-clerical population of the surrounding countryside was often built directly adjacent to monasteries in order to be able to hold church services for the normal people. The clergy could walk from their own monastery church to the parish church through a passage or gate which logically lay outside the immunity district of the monastery. That there were also economic developments in this period and not only death and destructions by Vikings and Hungarians is shown by the fact that the coinage economy expanded more than it had already been under Charles the Great hundred years before. I've pointed out before in the course of this podcast the importance of being able to mint and spend coins as a city or as an empire. This has always been a sign of prosperity and power and so the first coins were minted around 900, which had Colonia Sancta, meaning Holy Cologne, as an inscription on them. This already proves Cologne's important position as a spiritual and thus also economic center, as well as an important place of pilgrimage, which in the Christian Middle Ages naturally also meant rich, powerful, prosperous and being awesome. What was actually going on with Deutz at the time? Just that part of Cologne on the right bank of the Rhine, which already existed since the early 4th century. The mighty walls of the Roman fort, which Constantine the Great had built once, still stood in Deutz. It must have been quite safe here. Why do I think that? Well, first of all, the Frankish count for the district of Deutz probably resided here. His counterpart, either an own count of Cologne or more likely the Archbishop of Cologne himself, sat in his palace directly south adjacent to the old cathedral, while the Deutz count sat in the former Roman fort in Deutz. Secondly, the election of Archbishop Willibert in 870 from the previous episode probably took place here in Deutz. The thick stone walls protected well against rivals and perhaps against possible Viking attacks that people always had to think about at that time. According to the sources, the electoral college for the bishop's election traveled from Cologne by ship across the Rhine to Deutz on the other side of the Rhine. A hint which probably shows that at least the Roman bridge, which was built also by Constantine the Great, probably no longer existed, or if it still existed, it was no longer passable, or maybe it was like that you could jump from one pillar to the other, but you could not drive with a cartwheel or a horse over it. Who, by the way, the electorate was, whether around of important Cologne and surrounding clergymen that elected the bishop or the archbishop, we unfortunately do not know, nor the number of these people. What is certain, of course, is that in the end the respective Frankish ruler has the last word on 
who he wanted to appoint as a bishop in his realm here in Cologne. Surely there must have been a parish church of its own here in Deutz, because Deutz was administratively separated from Cologne since the Frankish conquest, and the inhabitants and residents of Deutz had to go to church somewhere, and swimming across the Rhine or using the rotten Roman Rhine bridge was out of question. Attending church, however, was the duty of every Christian in that time, and I think it still is. <laughs> it never changed. We just became lazy. Although a really verifiable parish church is only documented for Deutz around the year 1000, it is certain that there was already a parish church here at that time, but like I said, cannot find it anymore because it's gone, or we haven't found any traces of it yet. Let's leave it for today. Oops, why shorter than usual, some might ask. Well, take a look at the calendar. Today, at the time of publishing this episode in 2021, it is St. Nicholas Day and Christmas is not far away. The year is slowly but steadily coming to a close, meaning like many of you, I'm sure you'll be busy at work right now. Well, that's how I feel too, unfortunately, and I don't want to put anything down quickly, publish something half-baked or produce it under too much stress. Most of all, I want to have fun podcasting. Hey, after all, this is still my hobby. Even though I'm very thankful for my patrons who really are an additional financial support for this hobby. What will we talk about next time? The extent to which history is not set in stone from the outset and often only reveals a clear path through later developments in retrospect is exemplary in these years and will be shown above all in the next episode. The city of Cologne, as we learned, was several times part of its own Frankish Middle Kingdom, then in the late 9th century part of the Eastern Frankish Empire from which Germany was later to develop from, and then at the beginning of the 10th century, and yes, I know we haven't talked about it yet, part of the Western Frankish Empire, so the later France. It was not until the year 925 that Cologne would finally become East Frankish and thus, in the long run, a German city. But on the way there becoming a German city, there were numerous crossroads that could have made a different development possible around the year 900. But to fathom this would be pure speculation and in the realm of the counterfactual. How did it come about and what does Cologne have to do with the fact that, as I always dutifully recited in the intro, Cologne became a German city? We will find out in the next episode, when Cologne finally becomes an East Frankish and later German city. And we will learn how Cologne was actively involved in that process. So thank you very much for listening. Recommend me further. Thank you very much for reaching over a thousand followers on Instagram. I know it's just a silly number, but to see your follow number go from three digits to four digits is something special. And really, even though it's a hobby, it's a lot of work to create social media posts. So I'm very thankful and grateful 
for your input, your messages, your and uh, your engagement on my social media platforms. Thank you very much, and until the next time, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>